Tonight we're continuing a series we've been in recently, looking at some of the essentials or the basic building blocks of the Christian faith. And tonight we're focusing especially on the work of Jesus, our advocate, our mediator, our savior. Uh, In the bulletin I only have Hebrews 2, but I'll actually be reading a couple texts tonight. Uh, Colossians 1, a few verses from there, and then we'll go back a few more pages and read a few verses from Hebrews chapter 2. We'll begin with Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20. That's on page 1,165 in the Pew Bibles. This is God's word for us tonight. He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross." And then we'll turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll read from verse 14 to verse 18. Since the children have flesh and blood, Christ too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The key verbs that we read for tonight, especially in that Hebrews passage, are all about Jesus helping us out. The key concepts in this passage are that Christ partook of our nature, he became one of us, and he helps us, and he is able to help us. Jesus is merciful and faithful, and he helps us. So tonight I'm going to talk about four different ways we can think about how Jesus helps us. I'm going to talk about four ways that evil and sin hold on to us, and four ways that Jesus Christ, our Savior, sets us free from sin and evil. Four ways tonight that Christ saves us. First tonight, Jesus provides forgiveness for our debt. We were in debt to sin, and Jesus provided for us to be forgiven of that debt. In the early days of mining in the Colorado mountains, miners were always, always in debt. That hasn't totally changed these days in the mining industry, but it used to be a lot worse. Often, if you showed up and you wanted to be a miner, the mining company would charge you for the tools and the equipment and the clothing that you needed to start working in their mine. So they'd give you a loan to pay for the equipment you needed to work, and then they'd charge you interest on that loan. And they'd charge huge compounding interest. And as you worked, if you needed food, money, clothes, anything you'd need to survive, they'd be happy to give you more loans with more compounding interest. 
And it got to the point that a lot of those miners were working most of their hours just to pay off or at least to pay down the interest on the loans that they'd taken so that they could work to begin with. And then once the miners actually got to work, they'd go down, down in the mines, dangerous conditions, sometimes hand tools, sometimes they'd be blowing rock off rock faces with dynamite, and they'd bring the rock up in these huge carts, and the carts would be weighed, and the miners would get paid by the ton. But the companies had what they called the long ton, the long ton, and instead of being 2,000 pounds, it was about 2,400 pounds, and that's what they paid based on. So every time you brought up a load of rock, the company took an extra 400 pounds of work from you just because. And what's more often, only the company representative could actually look at the scale. They'd have it hidden somewhere up, and often if a miner leaned over to look at what the weight said, he'd be fired. You're out of here. You're done. Pretty quickly, pretty quickly, people owed everything to the company. They could never pay off their loans. They could never even make enough to live on. So they had to keep taking more and more and more credit, more and more and more loans from the company. And every day they'd get further and further behind. There's this old song called 16 Tons. It's about mining. And the chorus goes, you load 16 tons. What do you get? Another day older, another day in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me because I can't go I owe my soul to the company store. And that's where the mining company had its miners. And that's where sin has all human beings. Now, there's one way that that analogy between mining and sin works and one way that it doesn't. But let's start with the way that it does work. Sin starts by putting us in terrible debt. When Adam first chose to sin, the human race put itself in terrible, terrible debt. We took out a loan and we can never pay it back. We've committed an offense against an infinite God and that offense puts us infinitely in debt. No matter how much good work we do, no matter what we do, we can't ever get back to the zero point. We're always, always behind. Deep in debt beyond what we can pay. And that assumes that our debt was actually improving, but it isn't. We keep accumulating more and more sin and more and more debt. Sin keeps driving us on and on and on. It won't let us go, and it keeps adding to our charges. And it's not like there's just some oppressive overlord outside of us who's doing this. It's in us too. We keep driving ourselves deeper and deeper and deeper into debt. We want the wrong things. We want good things, but we want them in the wrong way. We go about doing things in all kinds of wrong ways. We inherit the debt of our forefathers, and we keep on piling our own debts up and up and up. Sin is an oppressive master, and it just keeps adding and adding and adding and adding to our debt. So that's the way the analogy with mining works, but there's also a way that it doesn't quite work. Like those old mining companies, sin keeps driving us more and more into debt. But unlike those companies, it's not actually sin or evil that we owe a debt to. We actually owe a debt to God. And God isn't the one driving us deeper and deeper into sin and deeper into debt. But still, every time we sin, we owe God more. Every time we could commit another offense against God, we owe God more and more restitution. And we can't keep up. 
We can't get back to that original place that humanity started, and we can't pay God back for the sins that we keep committing day after day after day after day. And that's where Jesus' work steps in. Jesus once told a story about a servant who owed a king an impossible debt. It might be $500 million or a billion dollars in our money today. And that servant would never be able to pay off the interest on that debt, let alone the debt itself. And his case is hopeless. But he begs and he pleads for mercy. And as he stands before the king, the king has mercy on him. The king forgives the debt. He writes it off. He pays it off himself. And this servant is free to go on his way forgiven. And that's what we need. We need someone with infinite resources to pay off our massive spiritual debt. And only God himself could do that. We need a Savior who is, who is God himself. We need God to step in and take care of our debt. And in Jesus, that is exactly what God does for us. And he doesn't just write it off or cancel it out. Jesus himself paid our debt. The Son of God, the only one who could pay our debt, stepped in and took our debt. He paid for us. And so in Jesus, all of us are forgiven of the great debt that we owed. If we belong to Jesus, our debt has been paid. For our second point tonight, for our second point, we were oppressed by evil and Jesus delivers us. We were held captive. We were imprisoned in our sin, and Jesus delivered us. During World War II, Germany captured most of Europe. Most of the other countries around Germany were overrun by the Nazis. And once they captured those countries, people were stuck there, under the power of evil, unable to get away. And you, you probably all know the stories. The Nazis were terrible. They put all kinds of limits on how people could live, they dragged millions of people off into prison camps, and they tortured or executed millions upon millions upon millions of people. Some of you here tonight actually lived through that time in Europe, and you know firsthand what that experience of oppression, of being under evil, was like. And that's where sin gets us. We're in occupied territory. In some sense, sin has all of humanity in its power. More specifically, some people say the devil has the world in his power. The devil has the world in his power, and he has all of us imprisoned. This view was really, really popular around Jesus' time and in the early church, too. They talked a lot about how the world is under the tyranny of the devil. We're all caught in this place where we are under evil. The world is full of sin. It's occupied territory. Demonic forces are in charge. Satan reigns here. Now, you can take that idea too far if you start putting the devil on the same level as God. So don't go down that road. Satan is nothing compared to God. But there is, there is something to this idea that the devil reigns over this world as a tyrant. And in some ways, we're victims of that oppression and in some ways, we're actually collaborators with the forces of evil. And so we need deliverance. And Jesus comes to deliver us. 
The early church fathers, when they talked about this metaphor, were really fond of using a fishing analogy, actually, to talk about how Jesus defeated Satan. They talk about how Jesus was the hook or the bait, and God sent him down onto the earth, and Jesus, he talked about the coming of the kingdom. He taught people how to follow God. He healed people. He spoke out against evil. He took on the forces of oppression, and he got Satan's notice, and this is how the early church presented it. And he got Satan's notice, and Satan eventually struck. He and his forces went after Jesus, and they captured him, and they dragged him down into the grave. But who was really caught? Who's really caught when a fish catches the bait? It's the fish that's caught, right? And so the early church would talk about how God caught Satan. Satan went after Jesus, and then he himself was caught. God undid all his power. God plundered his kingdom, and he saved and delivered us. Christ's death was the instrument that God used to defeat the evil powers of the world. When Satan thought he had captured Jesus, he actually had been caught himself, like a fish caught in a hook that can't get away. Now, there's some things I don't like about that analogy. We can talk about that after the service if you want. But the early church loved it. And there's something to it. The forces of evil have us imprisoned, and they struck out even against Christ. But Christ defeated them, and he delivered us from oppression. Through his work, Christ defeated the power of sin and evil, and he delivered us. For our third point tonight, when we were guilty, Jesus made us innocent. When we were guilty, Jesus made us innocent. Now, guilt is often a pretty hard sell these days. It's often easier for us to see how other people are guilty and a lot harder for us to acknowledge that, okay, maybe I've done some wrong things myself. I think a lot of us look at different things in the world and we know they're just not right. But when we look at ourselves, it's harder for us to see that. This shows up, I think, really clearly in any nation where there's two or more political parties. If a leader in party A does something questionable, party B is going to start screaming about investigations and oversights and punishment. If party A provides some favors for its members, party B is going to start talking about cronyism and corruption and nepotism. But then if party B, if party B has one of their politicians do a couple favors for somebody and they get called out on it, all of a sudden they'll start talking about fuzzy ethics and exceptions to the rules. If party B hands out some padded government contracts to some of their buddies, well, you know, that's just how you do business. It's just how it is. The United States obviously has some problems with this, but we're actually in pretty good shape compared to most of the countries of the world. But everywhere, everywhere, people are always ready to see how the other side, how someone else is just wrong and pretty slow to see how we ourselves are in the wrong. We're really good at seeing the speck in other people's eyes and ignoring the log in our own. When it comes to sin, we want God to punish everybody else, but just let us let us off easy. But God doesn't work like that. God doesn't put up with any wrong doing. I talked last week from Romans 3 about how in the ancient Roman courts, the defendants would put their hands over their mouth when they'd finished their defense. 
And sometimes if it was obvious that someone was guilty, some court officials would put their hands over someone's mouth to tell them, be quiet, stop. It's obvious you're guilty, just quit trying. When all of us stand before God, eventually we come to that point. If we really stand before the Lord in all His righteousness, we realize that we're sinners. We realize that we are guilty. And it's only once we've realized that, that we really can understand Christ's grace on this one. It's only once we've stood before the infinitely holy, perfect, totally powerful God who hates evil, who will not put up with any wrongdoing, and who knows everything that we've done, every single thing that we've done, he knows about because he was there. When we stand before God and we finally have that sinking feeling that, yeah, we haven't got it right. That's the point that Christ steps in and he takes our guilt. And we needed Christ. We needed God himself to step in because we couldn't stand the punishment that was due to us. And no other creature, no other human being, no angel, nothing could take on our punishment. Only God could handle our guilt. Only God could bear our punishment. We needed a Savior who was God himself. But we also needed a Savior who stood close enough to us that he could act on our behalf. We needed a Savior who had the power of God and a Savior who identified with us. And only Jesus fits that description. Because Christ is God, he's able to bear our guilt and to take the punishment we deserve And because he's human, he's able to stand in our place. And he's even able to sympathize with our weakness. Christ is gentle in his grace. He's experienced something of our troubles. And so he's able to deal with us gently and sympathetically. Even when we stand condemned before the throne of God. And that brings us to our fourth and final point for tonight. Our sin alienates us from God. Sin breaks the relationship between God and human beings. Adam and Eve's first response after they sinned was to run away from God. From the beginning, sin has made us far, far away from the Lord. And one thing that Jesus does is bring us home. This works out in different ways for different people. We all kind of have our own ways of running away from the Lord. And Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, I think, gives us a good window in some of the main ways that people run away from the Lord. Some people run away from God and they seek pleasure. They want to do things their own way. So like the younger, the younger son in Jesus' parable went to his father and said, show me the money. Give me my inheritance right now. And when his father gave him the money, the son ran off to a faraway country and he partied and partied and partied until the money ran out. Because that's what he wanted to do. A lot of people in the world today run away from God to find something more fun, something better, a greater party. That's one way that we've alienated ourselves from God. But there's a lot of people in the world who are like the elder brother in that parable of the prodigal son. And they they do the right thing. They know the rules. They follow the rules. They do everything just right 
but often their heart isn't really in it. They aren't really doing the right thing because they love the right thing. They're doing the right thing because they think that will bring them some kind of reward. And often they can't stand grace. They can't stand forgiveness. They can't stand to have someone not get what they deserve. And so the elder son in Jesus' parable, when his younger brother comes home and his father throws a celebration, he alienates himself from his father. He stomps out into the backyard while his father is throwing a big party, and he throws a little hissy fit. He says, I want no part of that. That brother, is, that brother of mine deserves what he got, and we should just let him stew in his poverty. Both of the brothers in that story end up running away from their loving father in different ways. And all human beings, each of us in our own sometimes very creative ways, end up alienating ourselves from God. We're all runaways. The serpent in Genesis sold Adam and Eve on sinning as a way of becoming like God. Do this and you can have control over your lives. Do this and you'll really be in the know. But when Adam and Eve sinned, they broke their relationship with God and they set all of us on a course straight away from the Lord. And it seems like no matter what we do on our own, no matter whether we run off and party or whether we stick around and we try to follow our rules, it seems like as long as we're doing our own thing, we just keep getting twisted around and we end up farther and farther and farther away from the Lord. On our own power, we just keep going the wrong direction and we just keep in one way or another getting ourselves further and further and further from the Lord. But Jesus comes to us and he shows us the way home. Jesus is like a really good big brother who comes out to find us when we're lost and he puts his arm around us and he shows us the way home. God is the one who brings us home. In the story of the prodigal son, when the, uh, the younger son, when he comes back, comes back to beg just for a little bit of food and some lousy job, his father goes running out to meet him and brings him in and has a party because his beloved son is home. And when the elder son is out being a grump and just so annoyed at his father's grace, his father goes out to him too. And his father invites him to come back in. Come back into the celebration. Come home and be with the family. And that's what Jesus does for us. However we stray from God, Jesus comes to us. Whatever our circumstances, whatever particular situation we put ourselves in, he comes to us and he says, come home. Let me bring you home where you belong. When we were far away from God, when we were alienated from him, Jesus came and he found us and he brings us home. Jesus is our merciful, faithful, gracious, helpful Savior. He forgives our debts. He delivers us from oppression. He takes away our guilt and he brings us home to be with God. And the scriptures promise that everyone who belongs to Jesus will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If we belong to Jesus, we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All praise be to God.